You're listening to Be a Video Leader, the ultimate test and measurement podcast. Thank you for joining me, Kevin Selvage, in the latest in the series from Leader, an interview with. Today, I'm joined by Pablo Garcia, colorist and managing director of Chromarama. Hello. Good morning, Kevin. How's it going? I'm very well. How are you? Um, we're pleased that you could yeah. join us. And for those who are not familiar with Chromarama and what your company does, Pablo, could you give us a brief overview? Yeah, so Chromarama has been the result of uh, many years of experience. And I've tried to put together all the, all the different tasks that I've been doing in the color world from both cinematography and broadcast. And so we have created what we call as a color integration company because it's uh, to facilitate workflows and, um, and color supervision for both uh, cinematography projects and uh, broadcast projects. So that's the meaning of uh, Cormorama. And actually, the Cormorama is a wonderful book. By the way, I took the name from an, an excellent book that it's all about color. It talks about psychology of color, talks about uh, the uses of color, talks about, I don't know, it's, a, it's, an in, it's an incredible book that I would recommend to all those enthusiasts of color to read it. For now, I think you can find it in Spanish and in Italian. I think there is an English version coming up. Uh, but the word of chromorama, it's uh, basically it's kind of uh, everything about color. So that's what we wanted to, to do with our company. And that's what, what we're doing right now. So we are supporting uh, post production houses in the part of uh, color science and uh, color supervision with them, working on, on their projects and ensuring that the workflows uh, and the picture, the artistic intent is maintained throughout um, all the pipeline onto the point of uh, deliverables and on the broadcast side, which has been keeping us very busy uh, these last two years um, and a half for projects that we're going to talk afterwards. Um, we are helping to ensure uh, also creative intent on the deliverables uh, part of it, which is basically for HDR production, because it's always HDR, SDR, and so on. We have also uh, worked very close with uh, with our development partner. Uh, we are going to launch um, our conversion engine, which is called Orion, uh, which is um, an SDR, HDR cross-conversion uh, algorithm that we're going to make now uh, available and commercially. So we're still doing color correction. We have a full working studio, uh, which is also what we use as, a, as our lab. We have a full color correction suite with uh, projection, and uh, we have also uh, HDR uh, monitoring and extremely good measuring tools, which is what we're going to be talking about. You've, you've already touched upon it, high dynamic range, and that kind of started in the world of high-end cinema production. And with the advent of yeah. OTT media services, we've seen a dramatic growth in the demand for HDR content. So your background as a colorist supervisor means that you've been involved in managing the image kind of from when it first touches the center of the camera to the point mm -hmm. it's finally delivered on the display device. So yeah. what are the tools are you using to allow you to build these kind of tools that are, you know, you're now promoting and supplying to mm -hmm. these broadcasters and uh, companies? For my company, the a signal measuring tool, I call it a waveform monitor, a vectorscope, and all the signal analysis tools is an essential part. I mean, it's not just an essential part. I don't think that Chromarama could exist 
without a tool like like that. We will be based on on that kind of tools and uh, measuring tools that we use for the display side. So calibration, uh, we have um, spectrocolorimeters, colorimeters, and so on. So we need to measure both ends. So these are the two tools that we use um, more intensively because we do also a lot of uh, part of the research and development is just to to see what is out there in the market in terms of monitoring and what is out there in the market in terms of uh, of cameras, in terms of lenses, in terms of filters. So um, the company is built on research. The company is built on 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 experience, not just on on research, but that, that research to put into the the field. And that is what the my experience as a colorist. Uh, I worked as a DIT for many years with uh, with extremely good cinematographers and award winning cinematographers, Oscar uh, Oscar winning cinematographers, BAFTA winning cinematographers, which I have learned so much from them. And it's something that I would extremely recommend to to colorists or aspiring colorists to at least spend a few years on set with a with and seeing what cinematographers are doing and why they're doing it and walking on the scene that you're going to be looking at it later on in a wafer monitor. And uh, you ended up kind of, uh, I don't know, maybe it's because I've been using so intensively wafer monitors for so long that even in my brain, when I'm walking on th through a scene, I'm already seeing the, <laughs> you know, the, the, the waveform uh, that is gonna how it's gonna look like afterwards, yeah. <laughs> and uh, what is gonna be the peak, and what is gonna be when I'm gonna find it, and depending on how we pan the, uh, the camera and, and the density, the contrast ratio. So this it wouldn't exist, as I said, my company without these tools and uh, the experience that we have gathered with them. Um, afterwards, I worked many years for for Sony, which is where we met. Yeah. And it's where this uh, HDR thing first came to uh, fell on my lap because I was working in the um, Digital Motion Picture Center in Pinewood Studios, which is kind of a Cine Alta uh, center for training and for demos. But we were doing a lot of research also for Japan because we were uh, half paid by, by Japan. Uh, and the first prototype of the now very famous uh, BBM X300 OLED HDR monitor came to us. It was the first one that came to Europe and it was a prototype and it couldn't even do, uh, well, there was no PQ, there was no HLG back in the day. So we're talking about, I think it was early 2016 when that monitor, uh, when that prototype came to us, the monitor could do only S-Log3. And I had plenty of F65s. I had plenty of F55s and, and so on. And I had a studio and this is when I started to, to investigate. And this was the, the first time that you came around and say, by the way, we're starting to develop these tools for measuring HDR signals. And that's where the whole thing kind of uh, started. Then because of my knowledge on S-Log3 and S-Gamuts and so on, Sony proposed me to help on the demonstrations or the kind of uh, development for the um, football World Cup in 2018, this was 2017, still with the uh, with the Conference Cup, and to, for the use of the of the technology of SLOG3 for such an event, uh, and that led also into that I just got very much involved, and basically they told me, oh yeah, by the way, you're going also to the to the World Cup, which I have never I, I never did broadcast before. That was my first. It was like jumping cold water a little bit 
because literally I never did work. <laughs> um, I never did broadcast before. I never seen, I mean, I've seen an OB truck, but as a visitor, you know, that you pass by, oh, and this is where they do the audio. This is where they do, oh, how oh, nice. And then you got out. <laughs> so the longest I was in a in an OB truck was about five minutes. Yeah, after that, I just, I just, I don't know, I enjoyed it very much. I'm not a, a sports person, especially in uh, in football, but God, I've done a lot of football lately. But I, it's, I don't know, for me, the the whole HDR technology for both for both worlds, for cinematography and for broadcast, it's just a complete new thing. I was actually quite bored and quite tired of kind of doing always the, the same as a colorist and quite, I don't know, frustrated a little bit on, uh, it was, especially in that time, it was always the same look in terms of a pro, uh, as an artistic approach. But then the, this whole thing started and, and it was just like, wow, okay, this is changing everything. Absolutely everything from the artist's point of view. So I got, I don't know, not obsessed, probably obsessed, but uh, I got really, really much into it and into trying to, to understand what this will be for creators. What this is going to be, what is going to be the future of looks? What is going to be the future look of this? How much are we going to, are we going to push it? How much, how much can this do? And what is the, the, what is the creative intended here? What are the flaws? Where are the, 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 oh, watch out with this. Because another thing that we do, uh, or that I've been doing for the last seven years is education. Is uh, with all this research and development, testing, testing, and failing. And I fail in control environments, thank God. I try not to take any of those um, things to set with a with a cinematographer. I will play safe always. I would never go to push it till the very end. But it was just okay. How are we gonna how are we gonna educate? How are we gonna how are we gonna experience uh, all of this? And yeah, it's 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 been an, um, it's been a hell of um, five years or six years until we came to what Chromorama is uh, is now. So Chromorama has been a kind of an uh, agglomeration of uh, of all of this it's, it will be hard. i mean i've been straight for a question that it's hard to explain what we do it's uh, uh we do a little bit of everything it's kind of like okay what do you need what what do you want to go to do you want to develop a new tool do you want to we do a lot of uh, helping uh, software manufacturers as well um with editing software that they now have color management we are part also of the development of uh, of aces of the color academy um, Academy Color Encoding System for cinematography for um, as a work frame. So yeah, all related to color, and that's uh, that's that chromorama. That's one hell of a lot of them. You and I first met when you were at the Sony Center, and that's going back nearly six years yeah. now. And what one of the first things I found with the leader set of tools and that when I started to talk to people that they could be worked, they could be used in kind of a create a grading and a creative part of the process was resistance because yeah. the comment from a lot of people is I'm a creative person. I don't want test and measurement restricting me. And that's yeah. the way test and measurement is viewed. It's sort of in the world of kind of standard definition, HD 709. It's you don't go outside of the, you know, the 709, you don't go outside of your gamut. Test and measurement is viewed almost like as a pair of handcuffs that you don't go outside. A of. little bit. It's it's always been seen as a as a pure engineering tool. This, yeah, it, it is an engineering tool, of, uh, of course. But when do you know what you're looking at? One thing I always say over and over again is a display 
can be wrongly calibrated, can be wrongly set up. A wafer monitor is never going to lie. Ever. It's absolute. It's a reference. Uh, yeah, it is a reference. For creators, knowing what you are looking at, and for example, I'm, I'm not going to lie to you. The From a 5600, I don't use any of the audio tools. I don't use any of the, I don't use many of the functionalities of the waveform monitors that I, that, I, that, I, that I have in leader, but the actual tools that I, that I need, which is the actual waveform, the, the vector scope, the CI chart. And so I am constantly in zooming in, zooming out, and, um, and, and I've built an understanding with it that it actually is telling me what the picture is and what the creative intent is behind the, the picture. You need to get uh, used to it, but for me, it's um, it's a perceptual thing. It's, for me, it's like looking actually directly at a picture in a display. Mm. <laughs> I know what is what is in there. Um, I remember the my early days as a as a as a colorist assistant. We were doing the very last days of well, not the very last days when when film started to fade out, um, but not to fade out in. The point of capture, everything was uh, delivered to us film. So we were doing a lot of digital intermediate. Uh, and I remember when we were, or when the senior colorist were fin- was finishing the, the the color grade, we were always doing a QC part, which uh, or a final review, which I turned the monitors, the displays off, and I was just I just had a wafer monitor in a large display, and I was passing the whole film, and I was just sitting down in there and watching the whole film. And watching just the wave from to move, and I knew when there was the card, when which scene they were. I had the audio as well, but basically I was just looking at the picture and that the consistency, that uniformity, that everything was nothing. I, I placed my ranges of um, the exposure should be here, or all pictures should be around here. I even had different um, for different scenes because it was uh, some scenes were a little bit darker and so on. So we had different guidelines uh, for that scene. So there was no and that was my mastering. And that was my, the QC. I was not looking at the display at all. Mm-hmm. I was only just looking at the, at the waveform monitor in a big display and just looking at it and watching the whole film like that. And it tells you a lot. I mean, when you know what you're looking at, a, waveform, a good waveform monitor, the, the resolution, and it's something that I've put a lot of effort and I, I put a lot of pressure on you guys. Yeah. Like, I need more resolution. I need more resolution in the in the web monitor. That graphically gets more resolution. The the color the because the more you can see, the better it is. The, the tool, it is, uh, yeah. to me, yeah, yeah. So I'm not a fan of uh, waveform monitors on on display. Uh, Sony BBM uh, has a waveform monitor. I'm sorry, but our me, I'm, I'm extremely picky, but I'm not doing that. No, I can't see. And I'm not going to use the word, but I can see anything in there. I can see shit yeah. <laughs> on that thing. That that's not, that's telling me nothing. It's like um, trying to hear uh, a good audio mix in a cracked speaker. <laughs> Do you know, <laughs> it's, it's the same experience to me. <laughs> and I'm coming from the audio side, so as well, you know, good speakers, good headphones, and good tools. You've kind of already alluded to it that back in 2018, you were involved with the FIFA 2018 World Cup, which I think was the first mainstream event to offer its rights holders UHD, HDR for every match, not just selected games like the final, quarterfinals and semifinals. All yeah, and every flavour available. Yeah. And every flavour available. We're yeah. doing S-Look 3, PQ and HLG. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> 
but obviously this summer, you know, there's there's been two major sporting events, and hopefully you can tell us how you, how you've been involved in those because they have followed on from that 2018 event, and are now continuing to push yeah. the boundaries. Yeah, the the first meeting with um, with OBS for the Olympics was a month after the World Cup on 2018, and the work started shortly after. So we started because obviously it was meant to be 2020, right? Um, we we're not expecting COVID to come and uh, and bite us a little bit. So yeah, work started actually no before 2019. Work started on the Christmas of preparation and testing and so on. We started on uh, early 2018. Then the Euros with UEFA, UEFA came a little after that. Uh, they came to me on early. 2020, I think straight after Christmas, it was a quite a busy uh, time in not negotiating, but uh, understanding what they needed and actually trying to find out if they were going to be able to do this because they nearly overlapped. And actually is what has happened this um, this year also. It's been literally a back-to-back, actually quite naked. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm really naked. I'm really naked after this summer. It's been uh, extremely, extremely tough. So I'm going to start with yeah, so the the both of the Olympics and, uh, and the UEFA, but then because of on the back of the work with the Olympics, with the Olympics we did a lot of of, of actual practical tests of getting an OB truck for different scenarios and for different environments to test the the technology and to test the workflow, because uh, it was what is what we have con- what we call a single layer workflow, and we were relying on lookup tables. Uh, that we developed for uh, exclusively for the um, for OBS, and obviously doing those lookup tables, it was all about measuring. And especially in this point, it was uh, I I've been developing lookup tables for seventeen years, twenty years, uh, but as artistic tools, technical because we were doing kind of um, standards. It's not a standard conversion, but we were doing I don't know a log C or S log three to seven or nine. Most of the time, we're always converting log high dynamic range into uh, into seven and nine, but with more of a creative approach into it. Mm-hmm. So this time it was uh, it was it was basically of first of all sending color bars and seeing what they were doing and and adjusting and designing those lookup tables to do exactly what OBS said. We were talking about abs- in this point we were talking about absolute values as as you were saying before. So I spent like uh, two or three weeks in the studio to send in all sorts of, um, I have a ton of, uh, of, of digital charts uh, with chromacity, with ramps, color ramps, sending everything I had into it. And then uh, OBS provided me as well with, uh, with a, lot of, um, a lot of content to evaluate. So on the back of it, uh, NBC came to many of these tests because NBC is a huge client uh, and a huge taker um, for the for the Olympics. And uh, and NBC asked also if they could talk directly to us uh, to help them with the um, the color management that they that they wanted to develop. They were not very happy with what was in the in the market at the time, and they wanted to to develop their own. Uh, so a part of just been doing this all these UEFA and Olympics, just 
before all of this, it was uh, working very closely with uh, with NBC Universal for the LUT uh, package that they've now made uh, available for many of their partners, uh, and that they have been using as well for on this uh, on this Olympics. So for the Olympics, we were providing uh, as host broadcasters, which is basically the, the main thing that Chrome does is host broadcasting um, color management or uh, or look and uh, look and feel and workflow design. Uh, we were providing HDR and SDR derived from the HDR. NBC was taking only the HDR and they were producing their own SDR, which was also basically used with the same algorithm that I talked about before with uh, Orion, we developed both sets of uh, of color transforms. Uh, some friends of mine are telling me, like, do you forgotten about you only doing broadcast right now? Like, no, but it's what has kept me really, really busy lately. Yeah. You touched on it there. I mean, I was going to say, so normally the host broadcaster, well, is required to kind of produce in the traditional way with a separate HDR and kind of HD SDR workflows. Mm-hmm. You started to allude there that that's not the way you did it. Are you able to elaborate uh, a bit more on how how we did it? Flow? The single flow, it's, as I said, is is based on on fixed color conversions, lookup tables. Uh, the f- one of the first things they found out was that uh, with all the color converters that are in the market for many manufacturers, I'm not going to name them all, but there are a lot of hardware color converters or uh, standard converters. None of them was doing the same thing, and one of the one of the points of the of the Olympics that that not very restrictive in terms of equipment, and we're talking about an insane amount of OB vans. What OBS has managed to to pull in uh, for for these Olympics, I think they've taken more than the sixty to seventy percent of all the available UHD HDR OB vans in the world. That's a lot. <laughs> And and obviously you cannot force them to like oh we're gonna use these manufacturers um, standard conversion tool or box you know you can't it's it's completely unthinkable mm. so there was a dilemma like how the hell are we gonna do this I mean the consistency is gonna be all over the place because they all do th- things in a in a slightly different way and then is when I when I jump in and I think it's back then when the BBC uh, launched their lookup table package. And, uh, and they started asking me, what is this lookup table? Because lookup tables, they have never been used in, uh, as far as I, I know, in this in a, in a broadcast environment. Maybe in very specific projects, but um, but never this way. So we created this set of fixed conversions that you can install because a lookup table is a small file that you can just load in many different devices, and then you get a consistency through that. The complication started when there are some devices that you cannot do you cannot put these lookup tables on it. So, and more importantly, because our SDR program was coming down from the HDR through a lot, we were taking the SDR out or the, the SDR splits of the cameras. That is, we were taking them as well. And we were providing them to some of the um, broadcasters that they were requesting it. And that's what we were using for, for EVS replace and so on. The most complicated part and why we needed so much testing was actually to find settings on the system cameras that match the look and feel of the lookup table. That's what the complicated that that was the complicated part. I think I at some point uh, on the studio I had you loan me some extra waveform monitors. I had like three of them with a camera connected, with footage yeah. connected, and seeing what 
everything was doing at the same time. It looked a little bit like the, I don't know, you going into a spaceship, something like this, my my studio. I think you came uh, in London uh, one or two times. It's one of the features of the 56 and 76 that you can monitor for independent transfer characteristics. Yeah, but I didn't. I did not have them back in the day. <laughs> now no, I'm really happy because I, because because that's what I have and uh, and that's what I what I can yeah, do. Yeah, I mean that's is that's similar to pe- people now want because you know S log three is not a transmission characteristic. No, but there's a lot of acquisition goes on with that. Yeah, indeed. and therefore that has to be converted into one of those transfer. Plus, at the same uh-huh. time, you, you've got to preserve that standard dynamic range output, which. As much as we love technology, that's what the majority of the world is watching. Yeah, yeah. and in this case, we were uh, all acquisition for uh, for UEFA and for OBS was HLG. We based uh, all of it in HLG. I only we only did SLOG three for the World Cup because of the amount of flavors we were producing. Mm. So it it is safer safer to convert. When you have so many flavors, we were doing uh, from the SLOG3, we were doing UHD SDR, we were doing UHD PQ, we were doing UHD HLG. And also, we were taking the, because that was a dual layer workflow, it was an independent production of the SDR outputs of those cameras. So when you have such an amount of, uh, of deliverables, uh, it is better to come from, uh, from a log um, acquisition format. Yeah. Uh, when you have less or you're just only distributing one, I would know my uh, HLG, in my opinion, is the is the production format to go to. And what many people are doing, for example, NBC, uh, they're doing is for distribution that distributing uh, in PQ, yeah. which a conversion from HLG to PQ, 1008 to 1008, is nearly transparent. Camera shaders, what are they looking at? Is it HDR or is it SDR? <laughs> I kind of the new guy, but in the in, especially in all the well, not new anymore. Thank, thank God, especially now in the World Cup, I found many people that I worked with them before. They can look at both. Right now, the majority are looking at SDR. Yeah, and they are familiar with SDR because that's that's the very important thing. HDR is not more complicated or less. Com- it's in my and maybe because I have a lot of experience, but in my opinion, is as complicated, or probably less complicated than SDR, because it has less limitations, mm. and especially in terms of exposure, and need, it probably needs less range, and less uh, interaction from the from the iris control, but it's what you're familiar with, and especially when you're looking at your technical uh, monitoring. And by technical monitoring, I mean away from it. Mm. Shaders are absolute ninjas of uh, the of speed. I mean, uh, they they have four cameras to, to, or more cameras, four, six, five cameras to, to work with. Um, looking at small, tiny monitors, probably with one single waveform monitor, you cannot really look at all of it at the, at the same time. Workflow, especially on OBVANS, workflows are starting to change. And we're seeing, for example, what NBC is, um, is promoting or, or is the, the workflow they're um, establishing for uh, for all which I think it's a really good idea, but you need X amount of converters, is for the shaders to shade in HDR, only using the HDR tools of the of the camera, but looking at an SDR converted signal. 
So you don't have to change all of your monitors. In an, that, that's ridiculously expensive, right? Yeah. A lab box is a lot cheaper than a monitor. Yeah. Um, and keeping also the, um, but I think they have a combination of uh, SDR technical monitoring and HDR technical monitoring. Because basically that lookup table that is doing the conversion is what uh, is a display light conversion. So it kind of keeps the, the look and feel and chromacity of the of the HDR in the SDR. So for someone that is not familiar with, it's a fantastic starting point. Yeah. And now that I talk about display light, all of these things of display light, the scene light and so on, which one is best? No, but our system is best. So our way, there's no good or bad. There's no best or wrong. It, it depends on what you want to do or what you need to do. That basically to just need really understand what is my intention. And then that will tell you if your workflow is going to be a scene light or display light or a combination of both. Mm. Which always you're going to need to sacrifice. And there's a lot of confusion on and a lot of white papers. And people read white papers as they are the, you know, the Bible. This is the law. Uh, in color science, there's no right or wrong, I'm afraid. So if it works for you, hey, thumbs up. Does it look good? Yes. Okay, excellent. Do you like it? Yes. Let's go. Yeah. I mean, it's really interesting what you say because, I mean, I've visited a number of trucks in Europe where you've got the HDR supervisor is almost deliberately hidden so that nobody else can see his pictures because if anybody yeah. in the production gallery looks at his, my pictures don't look as good as that. What's, what's going on? Because obviously <laughs> they're looking at the standard dynamic range monitor stack. Yeah, that's that is that is actually true. And also, one thing I would like to to point out is that the HDR supervisor is seen as a as an engineering person uh, shouldn't. The HDR supervisor should. That's actually that's this is one thing that we that uh, OBS did. Uh, in my opinion, a fantastic change. We created the position of the VIC, the vision in charge. That's the HDR supervisor, but it's part of the vision engineering team. Actually, is the head. Of the vision engineering team, it's a very experienced vision op that yeah. is looking after the consistency of pictures of both. You need to you need to keep them consistent. In the case of uh, of a full HDR workflow, as the one I was explaining before, even the, if you are using lookup tables for for monitoring and so on, but you are only using uh, HDR tools on the of, on the camera side, and you completely forget you don't use the SDR at all. Uh, that simplifies things a lot because mm. just basically that hits the supervisor that becomes once again the first vision up. But in a production where you actually need to or the shaders or they need to do both, there's someone that has to take over and look after that the settings are applied correctly and that the look and feel is uh, is consistent. We have applied also um, there is a small trick for what you were saying that my pictures they, they don't look that as good especially when you when you use a good color conversions uh, and consistent and predictable uh, and such there's a small trick that um, we can and i use it for example a lot on when i'm doing double vision uh, trim passes and it comes from the same point of what do you see in a way for monitor as peak white as peak white as diffuse white when you're doing pq or when you're doing sdr at 203 nit uh, so basically, I have calibrated my SDR monitoring to 203 or 200 roughly nits. So when you have them side by side, it's less confusing because from diffuse white to the bottom, the picture should look roughly the 
same. Chromaticity-wise, it would look different because one is 2020, the other one will be 709. Mm. But in terms of tonality, which is what humans are more sensitive to, you have a nearly same tonality from diffuse wide down. So changing all, I mean, not all and not many OV bands have their monitors calibrated or God knows when is the last time they did it. Yeah. But in my opinion, and especially when you have, uh, when it's an HDR capable truck, uh, that should change. Because also when you have those multi-viewers or when you have those uh, more commercial displays on the gallery, those are normally a lot brighter than the than the rest and the, the ones that the shaders uh, might be using. So you need to look after your viewing environment. Mm. And SDR and HDR are different viewing environments that they need to be treated separately. They have a lot of common ground, as I said before, but if you actually, if, as I said, if you put the calibration nearby and you have a good color conversion, it will be less people saying, my pictures didn't look as good as that one. So and this is something that we achieved, we achieved on, the, on both, uh, certainly on the, for the Olympics, that the SDR was uh, nearly a match with exception of, you know, all the expanded dynamic range and the, and the colors and so on. But it was um, a, the look and feel was the same as the HDR. Mm. I remember when we first made the migration from standard definition to high definition, and mm-hmm. lots of the trucks were equipped to support high definition, although they were delivering standard definition. And the comment was mm-hmm. that the pictures look better in standard definition because obviously they come from a higher resolution. Mm-hmm. I'm assuming we're in the same point here that if we're acquiring in UHD, HDR, wide color gamut, but you're still only delivering an HD SDR 709, it should look better than if it was acquired right at the front as HD 709 SDR. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We could invert it. (laughs) And now I'm going to be quite controversial right now. With very good shading, but I mean that I would maybe place one camera per operator, two cameras per operator at max, because you need to work really well on your knee settings. You need to work really well. I mean, it needs to be created a really, really nice SDR picture. You could fake an HDR picture, which is what we do with uh, with um, with EVS replays. Most of the time, we are still using SDR and 1080 uh, EVS replays. But what we have done, that's, that's, that's what I told you, the real complication was to find the settings on the, we had to use very fixed settings on the SDR side of the camera. So we limited a little bit the creativity of the, of the shaders, um, which anyway, if you think about it, the problem with the system cameras right now, and this is a, a call for system camera manufacturers, is that the, they have complete different tools for one and the other. They have to unify. They have to give back those creative tools and eliminate someone that are only working for SDR and include a few that can actually do a really good job for, for the HDR. And we need to start, we, we need common tools yeah. that actually are seen referred so that those creative adjustments, it doesn't matter if you are doing HDR or SDR or super mega, um, you know, that oh. that creativity is kept within the hands of the uh, of the shader. Mm-hmm. but. Well, you said, yes, absolutely. You will get a better picture from a HDR converted down or converted um, to SDR picture. And also you get the, the benefit, as you were saying, of the spatial resolution. If you come from UHD and you put it as a, as a HD, picture is the same effect. 
that it was from HD to to SD uh, back in the day. So, but it's, so it's a double uh, it's a double benefit. And obviously, you've got the benefit if you are digitally something that you need to. If, if you're archiving at the yeah. highest, you have the, you, you then have maybe a second, third, or fourth revenue stream on that content further down the line. Yeah, and if you're archiving uh, traditionally broadcast archives the deliverable but if you really want to take profit of your archive i would archive in a more acquisition format like for example if archive is is an essential thing i would strongly recommend on a workflow tool to do it in slot 3 mm. or even to do it in linear if it would be possible but that, that's that's huge data <laughs> what we're talking about but it will come that's what we're doing on uh, in cinematography uh, all archives are kept in linear like because yeah. that is the only thing that is going to save you in cinematography is thinking, the archive is thinking on 100 years ahead. You know, it's like for, for posterity. It's a cultural heritage, something like this. So it's thinking on, on that big box. That Well, you're coming from know. a world of film, aren't you, where the negative to this day holds so much dynamic yeah. range. I mean, look at NHK when they launched their 8K service. What was the first program? Yeah. It was a film, 2001, A Space Odyssey. Shot yep. on 65 millimeter film in 1968. Yeah, yep. it still had the resolution, it had the dynamic range, it had the color imagery to stand up yep. to the highest broadcast standards we can deliver today. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. If, uh, if what is kept or archived is the original camera negative edit, and then so sometimes the big films they tend to archive the actual positive for projection, the inter-negative, and the negative. You save the three of them just in case. Yeah. But if you re-scan the original camera negative, from the late 50s onwards, all of that can be considered high dynamic range capture because they were 12 and a half, 13, 14 stops. Yeah. Of, uh, depends on what the artist contrast ratio of the scene, because we are talking about uh, control environments of lighting and, and such. So they were normally, uh, cinematographer would normally work with the contrast ratios that can be displayed afterwards. So they, they, they used to keep it quite constrained. But from the acquisition point of view, those that is a high dynamic range uh, acquisition. So there's been a lot of risk and, and a lot of rework and remastering of many, many films that we're going to see that they are already in the vault in HDR. Yeah loads of uh, 80s films. There's been an enormous amount of work and actually probably COVID is, uh, during COVID time is what has saved, especially the big studios or the big post houses uh, that they were doing all this restoration because the um, production companies were archiving that high dynamic range or more of kind of a scene referred master of their, of their products. So yeah, you can use it as many times as, uh, as you want. And the more towards linear that you archive it, uh, there comes a mega high dynamic range that can do, I don't know, billions of needs or something like this. You could remaster it to that one too. Yeah. You've now proved with your involvement that possibly one of the most demanding sporting events can be done live with HDR and mm -hmm. deliver an SDR deliverable derived from that. So kind of what's next for your company? <laughs> are people knocking down your door saying, well, look, we've seen what you've done with the Olympics. We've seen what you've done with UEFA, the European Championships and that. 
you know, is this now going to ripple down across other sporting events? Uh, I really hope so, but not just for the sporting events. There's a um, lot of live, I mean, live concerts and things like this. That, that actually, the, the way the first time I, I did a, something similar to broadcast, another I remember was actually a theater play, and it was not HDR, but it was a special broadcasting that was going to go to cinemas. And, and another I remember, and we developed lookup tables to go from standard dynamic range to a cinema standard. So basically we were doing a 2.4 SDR to 2.6 P3 mm. for transmission from the truck. And it was, it was uh, I think it was a war horse. Oh, yeah. And it was shown in several cinemas in UHC. So it was UHC SDR, and then we were converting the color space, et cetera, for distribution for, for the cinemas. So um, musicals, you can you can do everything. All production can be done in, in HDR Live. If we've done this humongous multi, I mean, for the Olympics, we have 1,800 cameras. Mm. There were some of the venues, as, uh, I, I remember horse track that was like 47 uh, 47 cameras mm-hmm. and they rig it in two days that team did an amazing job on rigging them all of that uh, in in less than two days all of it up and running all color conversions on and we even had time to go camera by camera per camera the day before the, the during the dress rehearsal mm-hmm. so when they went live it was like okay hands off and uh, so Everything can be done in uh, in HDR. All productions can be done in uh, in HDR. All live production, not just the sports. So uh, I'm looking forward to genre. Really, is probably the next one to explode. Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, and deliberate for cinema. You can start doing these. There's been a lot of, uh, of experimentation and experiments with concerts and things like this that you sell tickets for for cinemas. But you can you can. I mean, doing a multiple. De- Deliverables. If you have a high dynamic range acquisition point from the OB van, you can distribute it to anything. Yeah. Technically, you can convert it to anything. So, so I will encourage people to 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 start doing it more. I would like to see less complicated events happening like this. Yeah. So Pablo, so once again, thank you for joining us and explaining what Chromarama does. Um, it's been a fascinating insight into kind of how high dynamic range is now being used by mainstream broadcast productions. And I'd also like to thank you, the listeners, for joining us. And if you have any questions on this subject that we have discussed during this podcast, please don't hesitate to contact me or Pablo. Our contact details mm-hmm. will be available on the website. And Pablo, yeah, many thanks once again. Thank you, Kevin. For more about Leader Electronics, visit leader.co.jp en or look for Leader Electronics on YouTube, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter.